so misunderstood. You know, it's an assumption, you know, that I'm dangerous. It's an assumption that I am barbaric in some way. And to not understand that I enjoy reading books just like anybody else, I enjoy doing math equations like most nerds, regardless if they're black or white. And those things about me, you would never know because you're too busy looking at my skin. Let's raise. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to chapter three of Reading and Raging with Charles C. Patton. I am Charles C. Patton, and thank you so much for spending your time with me today. This chapter is a conversation that I had with Ira Moore. Ira is a chemistry major currently attending Morehouse College. He is a Gates Millennium Scholar, and he is the National Chair for Academic and Excellence for Nesby which is the National Society for Black Engineers. Ira and I actually met about two or three days into new student orientation when I attended Morehouse College. We had the same major, we lived in the same dorm, we're both Libras, and we gravitated towards each other and became best friends ever since. In this chapter, we based our conversation on the novel by Kwame Mbalia entitled Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky. And it is one of the series that is in Rick Riordan's collection of books that focus on bringing to life the many worlds of mythology. Our word for this conversation is acceptance. Acceptance of yourself, acceptance of where you are in life, acceptance of other people, other people's journeys, your own journey, all of these things. And again, if you are not registered to vote, please go to the link in the description below. All of the information is laid out there for you. It only takes a few minutes to register. And if you need an absentee ballot, the link is in the description below as well. And remember that many states are starting their early voting right now. We are in election season. Don't think of it as just election day. Please go out and vote. With that being said, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome to Reading and Raging with Charles C. Patton, the podcast. Through an in-depth analysis of creative written works, thought-provoking conversations, as well as critical commentary on the world around us, RRC serves as a haven for individuals that yearn to inspire and awaken the light from within. Designed to aid each of us in our journeys for self-discovery and enlightenment, pushing us closer to actualizing our unique purpose. We can't wait for you to be a part of this conversation. And now, let's rage. So yeah, how are you doing right now? Like, where where's your headspace? How have you been during this quarantine process? I know that you that school started back, and you all are doing online classes right now. How's all of that going for you? So I moved back to Atlanta um, for school, um, and as you say, we are virtual. Um, so it's an adjustment, um, especially since I'm a STEM major. Um, I feel like 
I need a little more, you know, in-face instruction. Um, but I'm, I'm combating that with just some extra resources and then just putting in that extra time studying um, because it's really teaching yourself when you're in this type of environment. Um, mm -hmm. I know intention behind it, but as far as for student success, that usually what ends up being. Um, but I think um, I'm really adjusting well. Um, and as I start to figure out what my next steps are at the graduation, I'm feeling a lot more confident in the goals that I have and really pursuing my passion. So I'm in a good space right now. That's good. Yeah, I honestly, I cannot imagine what it would be like, especially being a STEM major. Like, I'm just thinking about all the labs that we had to do and how that will work, especially like I'm a kinesthetic and visual learner. So I have to be, I got to do, be doing something and physically in the presence of my professors and stuff in order for me to really understand the information. So I, my hat tips off to all of y'all who are doing this right now. Cause I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And also like. It's doable. I will say it's yeah. just taking that time, um, you know, and it has to be something that you want to do. It, this right. is going to really tell you, is this the major that you really want? Um, because you're going to have to put in the work to achieve, you know, where you want to get to. Um, but, you know, it's doable. It's just, you know, how bad do you want it, really? Yeah, I feel that, definitely. Especially, like, during this time, we've all had the opportunities to sit down and really be with our own thoughts. And I feel like that's uh, a benefit to all the quarantine stuff that's happening. Of course, you know, the loss of life and all of the unrest that we're seeing is not, you know, great at all. And um, my heart goes out to all family members and all loved ones who've lost people uh, during this time. And, um, but I will say that uh, a benefit to it all is being able to be introspective during this time, especially with no, uh, you know, outside forces coming in and you having to go out and, and do life. We've all been cooped up in the house and there've been some openings, especially like Atlanta, I know it's open right now, but what, uh, can you tell us what the, the book that we decided for this conversation? Yes, and so the big book that we chose was Tristan Strong Punches a Hole Through the Sky mm -hmm. and it's written by Kwame Mbalia. Um, and I chose this book for a couple of reasons. The first being that the author um, sits at an intersection that I've sat in for a very long time, and that is between STEM um, and, you know, that creative fine art side. Um, so the author actually is a pharmaceutical tech by trade, um, and he's a part-time writer. Um, and so that kind of spoke to me as I am a chemistry major um, who enjoys dancing just as much as I love being in um, and so that drew me in originally. Um, and then, um, as you know, I'm a very huge fan of Rick Riordan, um, who has, you know, made his name off mm -hmm. of presenting mythological figures and really systems um, to our modern society in a way that we can understand and still appreciate the tales. Mm -hmm. um, and I really enjoyed that book, those books, because it really helped me understand um, that people can have differences um, but it's the differences that make us, you know, who we are. And so to finally get a series um, that hits directly on African-American and West African folklore is something different. Um, and, and to, for example, uh, Rick Ryan actually wrote a series before um, that was based on Egyptian mythology. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that got me close 
um, but it wasn't the same because those aren't the stories that I heard growing up. Those weren't, you know, the books that I read. Those weren't the, the, the content that I was exposed to as my, you know, heritage. Right. Um, and really see something that really touches on, you know, the stories that, yeah, there aren't many, you know, African-American folklore or West African folklore that are mainstream. Um, but I think by touching at all, and yeah. I think on a story that is probably the most wide known um, West African folklore story, which is a Nazi getting the power of storytelling from the Sky King uh, Yame. Um, I think that is a really good place to start. Um, I think it really speaks to the heritage, how we pass our history down um, and why our voice is so important. I definitely agree with you. I am a huge fan of Rick Riordan and all of his works that he's had. I'm a huge geek when it comes to mythology and all of that stuff. And when I was first introduced to uh, Rick Riordan through the Percy Jackson series, I'm sure that there are so many people, because I think that was like in middle school or like elementary school, middle school or elementary school around that time. And I just fell in love with it. And then when I found out uh, he did the Roman uh, mythology and then Egyptian mythology, just like you. I felt like that was something that I could connect with because, I mean, being African-American, of course, not being Egyptian, but having stories that were centered around African mythology, even if those Egyptian, was something that I was like, oh, my goodness, I've never seen this before. And now knowing that he has his whole um, network of uh, of books where it's like written presents and it's like a telling of so many different mythologies that people you know aren't privy to especially when it comes to african-american mythology and um, west african mythology i feel like that was a great way to introduce people to this stuff and also create representation that we really haven't had at all in seeing like even the cover of the book if you can like put the cover up again like seeing a black boy on the front of that and then seeing uh if i'm not mistaken henry yeah in the back of him like i've never seen that before and i'm thinking about all of the kids that like are growing up right now that all the black kids that like even other races and stuff that can see this and and be um be privy to this type of mythology and this type of representation is amazing and I really love that you picked this uh, this book because it, from doing the research and everything, it it not only touches on um, on the African American mythology and West African mythology, but it also tells the story that holds so true to Black folks in this country, especially being at a young age uh, that uh, that Tristan is in the story. And one thing that I was that I was really interested in was this idea of of uh, of guilt and and what it looks like to show emotion and to grieve and all of those things uh, that it looks like in a specifically like a black man in this country and how how we our families especially southern families because that's you know what we're where our families come from we're from the south and the the dynamic that the that Tristan has with uh with his nana and grandfather when he is moved to Alabama from his parents 
like that dynamic is really interesting to me, like to see how the uh from remembering correctly from you know what i what i read was that the nana was a little bit more nurturing and his grandfather was a little bit more like on the okay like get your stuff together we ain't got time for all of that like can you speak to like your experience with with how that looks like and you showing like your emotionality and and how that dynamic is being a black man and having to maybe close yourself off because I think that was really great that the author put that in the story because it speaks to a lot of people and I think that it'll uh, be very beneficial for young folks to to read that and, and feel like they're being seen. Yeah, um, so definitely. Um, I've definitely experienced that um, a lot growing up um, in the South. I'm from Georgia. Um, and so a lot of the times, you know, I, I grew up seeing grown men not show emotion. I saw, you know, even if we're at a funeral, of course, you you see, all you see around is the stern look. You don't see tears. You don't see, you know, the memories. You don't see what that person meant to you. Um, and in, in general, in African-American communities, we deal with death a lot. We deal with loss a lot in a lot of different ways, and we deal with disappointment. And a lot of the times, I feel like as an African-American male, um, people only see me as being strong. I can't be vulnerable. I can't be sensitive. I can't, you know, cry, you know, and those are things that I have a right to do. Um, and me being, I personally, I'm a very emotional person. Um, and so this book was validation that I have feelings. I have the right to have those feelings and I have the right to express them. And there is no rule book and there is no archetype for an African-American male that says that I have to be strong at all times. Because yes, we are strong, but that's not all we are. We are multifaceted, we are diverse, you know, and, and that should be celebrated. We shouldn't be put in a box. And for me to read this story, um, to see this young man, you know, liberated from that grief, liberated from that feeling of loss and disappointment and finding his true identity, that is something that I can truly identify with and something that I'm working on myself now. So to see that, you know, in such a grand scale, um, I think it really makes a difference in, you know, in that introspective look into yourself. Yeah. And I'm thinking back, like, if I had stories like this, like one of a young black kid that was dealing with a loss that, and we'll get into exactly like what we're referring to, but that's dealing with a loss and that's, well, not even a loss, but just dealing with life period and was was given the, the platform or even was allowed to express themselves in a way that was healing instead of like compartmentalizing themselves and and trying to wish away those feelings and understanding them, I feel like I would have, and a lot of other people would have been able to understand themselves a lot better and been able to navigate mental health and, and all of these other things in a more healthy way than what we do right now. And, uh, but to say, like, we're talking about loss and all that stuff, like with the book, but could you give an overview, like of what we're actually just talking about, like without giving anything away, because there are a lot of gems in this book, but could you give like a, a quick little summary of what the, the, the book is about? Yes. So Tristan Strong is about a young African-American male um, that's dealing with a recent death um, in his life. Um, he feels responsible. Um, so he's dealing with that guilt of, you know, what could he have done to do something, you know, to save that person? What, you know, what could he have done differently? Um, so he's dealing with that. 
And then, of course, he's in a strong black family, which feels, you know, and he's a boxer. He comes from a family of boxers. So they feel like that strength, that toughness should be exuded at all times. And, and for him, that can be limiting because he is a creative. He is someone who, you know, really thinks he cares about others. And that does not offer every part of him just being a boxer. Um, and so as he, you know, enters into a magical world where he's exposed to African-American and West African folklore, you know, he's finding more about himself. And I think that's a larger metaphor for how we can identify ourselves once we have that connection to the past, once we understand where yeah. we can, what we had. And so to see him really work through metaphors of what our people have gone through for the last, you know, hundred, hundreds of years, I think it really explains, you know, from the Black perspective, how we have endured and how we have kept our culture through all of this suffering. We were discussing, uh, we're talking about the, the, the survivor's guilt that Tristan was experiencing with the death of this person, this loved one that he had. It brings me like to to think about my own survivor's guilt that I've had and not in the not in the context of an actual death, but in, in a different context in, in terms of having certain opportunities or or going out and experiencing uh, a different facet of the world and what that looks like. And my question like is have you experienced some sort of survivor's guilt in that way before? And how have you been able to navigate that? Um, so the two times that I can think of that come to mind, or two examples rather, um, number one, my mother is an educator. Um, and so I was taught how to read when I was two, you know? So I've been exposed to education a lot earlier you know, if, if your parents don't have the education background, and a lot of times in these communities, most people have high school diplomas or GEDs, you know, they don't have those opportunities necessarily to go get that post-secondary education. And so for me to have that, number one, that made a difference. Um, and then for me to be, to receive the Gates Millennium Scholarship, you know, that afforded me to be able to attend whatever school I wanted to in the country. Um, and that's not an experience that, you know, most African-Americans will experience unless it's through, you know, athletics or some type of talent. A lot of the times there aren't just scholarships out there that say, hey, you just have to worry about going to class. Yeah. We else. And I can only imagine how many people would get through college, get graduate degrees and have successful careers if they were given that opportunity if someone made that investment in them. And so sometimes I feel like, you know, I was given the path that most people, you know, will never get to experience. But the question is not for me, um, why, but what can I do with the opportunities given to me to better my community? Um, and the way and that, you know, it presented itself early to me. Um, when I was younger and I would notice that, you know, some students were having issues, you know, I really began to help. And that led me into tutoring, um, which is something that I still do. It's something I enjoy. I, I, I love helping people learn. Um, and I think that, you know, I was put in this position because I retain knowledge and I'm able to explain it. Um, and so as long as I keep that in my forefront as to why I'm here, 
um, to give that information, um, to give that advice, to give, you know, those options to other people that they wouldn't have otherwise, I'm here to do that. I can open minds with the experiences that I have. And so for me, that's the way that I kind of deal with that feeling of I have something that others don't because I share. And when Tristan, Tristan comes from a family of boxes, like I said before, well, like you said, and he's coming into this new identity. He's, he's, there are so many things that have happened to him throughout this book that has reared him in a way that allowing him to figure out exactly what his true purpose is. And that might not necessarily be what his family entailed for him. And uh, I love that aspect of the book because I feel like it gives uh, it gives people the the willing not the willingness but the permission almost to go out and and find yourself outside of what other people have determined for your life. And I'm curious to know, like, has that happened to you in any sort or any facet of your life where you? have been expected to be a certain way or do a certain thing and you had to press pause for a second and then come into your own identity own understanding of what that looks like for you yes um and i'm glad you said that um because um and for me um it was a little different um my me being one of the only males in my family um the expectation was you know whenever something needed done you know it's call Ira. Um, and so that responsibility of having to fulfill all quote unquote male responsibilities in the household and in a family full of majority women, it, it can be challenging. Um, because, you know, when I'm at school, I'm able to focus on myself. You know, I'm able, of course I care about others. Of course I check, you know, in at home. But when I am home, you know, it's whatever I have to deal with and in a, a, a list of tasks that need to be done. You know, and so for me to find my identity outside of my family and understand I am worth more than what I can do, mm. I think that was something liberating. That's something that I found at college. I found that my voice is enough. My personality is enough. My presence is enough. I don't have to do something for you for you to understand me. You know, just the conversation or whatever activity we're doing should be enough because I am a person. Um, and so that is something that a lot of African-American males struggle with. It, it, we get put in these boxes based on what our family is known for. You know, my dad was one of the first people um, to get an athletic scholarship, um, you know, out of Macon, Georgia. Um, he played golf at Jackson State University. Um, and so for, you know, the expectation for me was I had to get a full rap, you know, coming out of high school. That is something that I happen to achieve based on my self-drivenness and my ambition to, you know, leave making. But right. it didn't help, you know, when you have, you know, certain people in your family basically saying, you know, you're not, you know, going to be able to go to school. You want to go to, you know, mm. if you do this and you don't get that. Um, but I didn't let that limit me. Um, yeah. I, I pushed me because I felt like I deserved a post-secondary education. I worked hard. Yeah. And, you know, no one was going to stop me, you know, from really elevating myself to the levels that I think I can reach. And, and now I know that those levels are limitless. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like so many people, man, there's such a, 
I hate that that people have to go through that, that we aren't able to come into this world as ourselves and then discover what that looks like for us. There are so many things that, that happen within our lives, whether it's the expectations of our parents or these expectations of our uh, family members, friends, or other outside forces, society, what that, what, what society deems as like, okay, this is an acceptable um, person, or this is what an acceptable job looks like, or, or what have you, right? And I feel like I just want everybody to be free. And even when I say that, myself right now, I'm working towards that. I'm working to to dispel everyone else's expectations of myself and to find that which makes me happy and focusing primarily on my passions and, and what that is because a lot of times people don't even know what they're passionate about and what what that looks like for them because they've listened to other people for so long. I mean, no fault of their own because, I mean, that's the world where, you know, we're born into. And a lot of times our family members are mean well. That's what, I mean, that they want, they've been told that this is the right way. So they're going to tell you that and forgiving, you know, your, your parents or other family members or other people that have, you know, really messed you up over the years is, is a step towards that. I feel and my question, like, how, how did that, how did that feel for you when you were reading this book and and it was an explosion of of African deities and and African American gods and folklore that we weren't privy to we we knew who John Henry was and we had you know this idea of he because in passing and a lot of people don't even know who who he is or who this uh this uh character in African American folklore is so like, how did that make you feel uh, taking a deep dive into this new world? So, you know, anytime that I read, you know, a book that's in the style of, you know, writing, you know, I, I really have an open mind um, because most of the time, especially in the first novel of the series, and this will be a trilogy, um, it really opens you into the mythological system that you'll be exposed to throughout the series. And so to see this um, world and it's so representative of what we're still going through as a people. Um, the, the world is split into two different islands, one that is mid-past um, and then the other which is Al-Key, which is representative of Africa. Um, and so that disconnect alone really mm -hmm. shows that there's a larger disconnect that we're missing. And so for Chris, for, excuse me, for Tristan to be exposed to really his heritage at such a pure amount, you can only, you know, there's no way for him to not find more about himself find out that, you know, there's more to him than what his parents have always said were his best qualities. You know, he finds power within that heritage. He finds knowledge within that heritage. You know, he finds confidence within that heritage because it's something that he can relate to. And it is something that speaks to issues that he and his people have faced for a very long time. And so see how this world was created um i think it was a really you know brilliant way to show that larger metaphor for our disconnect with our african brothers and sisters as well as connect to our past yeah 
and I hear you so much when you say that because I've just heard over the years, and that was even a conversation when Black Panther came out, was that uh, the movie, the film was amazing. It was, you know, the first time we've ever really seen an all black cast and all black, a black movie, uh, really a black movie put at, uh, at the main stage and, and receiving so much love and so much support throughout it and people and young folks seeing that and, and being empowered in their blackness. And there were so many conversations around that time uh, that were like, okay, well, who is this movie for? Like, is it, it was celebrating blackness and, and black culture, but it was, you know, primarily uh, uh, African uh, centered and, and some folks felt that it was uh, separate from the African-American experience, even though Michael B. Jordan's character played, you know, the uh, really African, I, I felt that uh, Michael B. Jordan's character was a symbolism and representation of the African-American person. Mm -hmm. uh, that, well, a facet of what that identity looks like and how it, we were torn away from our, our home and given and put on this, this new land and without, uh, without the, I mean, we had identity, but it, we, they were actively trying to take that away from us so they can put their own understanding of who we are into our minds. And mm -hmm. I feel like that has parsed through, uh, through our, well, pierced our minds throughout the years. But with this book, I feel I've never seen African-American folklore, like true to our culture here on, on here in America and that being the center focus of a novel of a book well of a trilogy like this and it really brings me joy because I'm like I've I when people say that like there's you know no such thing as like African-Americans don't have culture this and that and and all, our only culture is like you know built around hip-hop or or other uh, versions of that and there's this whole facet of our culture that has not been tapped into or at least it has been but not to this extent and not to to this degree where where we can share it with you know young folks and and people that are may not be in that same demographic but to understand like no we have so many different stories and folklore and, and different things that we have had for passed down through generations and now here's something that we can celebrate and read and, and immerse ourselves in. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that, like you said, it's a missing piece. Um, it's something that, you know, if you had parents that, you know, were exposed to it, you know, yes, you heard it. Or, you know, in my case, you know, I was an avid reader growing up and, you know, mythology was something that I was very, you know, interested in. And so actually the first, um, African-American folklore I read was John Henry um, and you know because that's what we all pretty much know but then to go book and really understand you know characters like Br'er Rabbit um, you know which is another known character but most African-Americans don't understand his significance and you know the folklore that our ancestors you know that got them through slavery you know I, I think it, the importance of it has been taken away um, I think it's distorted a little bit. We have to really tell authentic stories, you know, that 
tell not only what was done, but why was it done? How was it done? These things, history is very helpful for the future in a lot of different ways. And so when you have, you know, our Caucasian counterparts who have such access to what country in Europe they're from, um, you know, things of that nature, and it's so easily accessible, it, you feel disconnected. And, and so, of yeah. course, you know, the modern society is going to assume that we just care about rap, hip hop, jazz, you know, there's, there, there are things before that, you know, there were stories, you know, there were rituals, there were gatherings that happened that we will never be exposed to because that wasn't recorded, you know, it wasn't written down. We had to pass things by the word of mouth a lot of the time. And so that is a tradition that we still hold true, but it is something that can leave things lost in the wind. Yeah. And it's not, not even that it wasn't recorded, but it was exterminated. Like they tried to, they did not allow for us to gather and to, and to worship and to do certain things that were true to our culture and, and who we were as a people for so long. And I'm just so thankful that uh can you say the author's name again kwame imbalia kwame imbalia mm -hmm. yeah he is just amazing and i'm so thankful that he that he wrote this book and is making it a trilogy i think the second book is out now yeah, sure. yeah and like with this idea of like family is something that is central to this story and of course central to all of our, well, most of our lives and especially, but there's something in particular about the Southern family, the Southern black family that is so, and no, you know, disrespect to anyone else who, you know, is not, uh, who does not have this experience, but for the two of us, we have uh, families that are Southern. We, we come from Southern families and, and there's just something so, so rich and something so uh, divine about that family. And being that uh, this is, you know, the central focus, well, not really the central focus, but it is set in Alabama for a significant amount of time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I'm just, I'm so curious, like what your, experience has been like with with your family and how has that been for you growing up and how essential has that has those connections been for you oh um definitely um making is definitely considered rural i mean of course we have you know the modern part of the city but you know a lot of it is you know countryside i live you know back where there are horses and cows you know so to have a family that is so deep rooted in love, deep rooted in togetherness, um, and really out of fear of past generations where families have been torn apart. Um, I yeah. think it's really, it's unconditional. Um, and it may not always look unconditional, but you know, <laughs> but you know, at the end of the day, I know I am loved, I know I'm appreciated. Hey for and I know they want the best for me and to always have that love behind you it's empowering I've never yeah. felt it. I've, I've never been told you can't do something you know I've always told whatever I put my mind to I can achieve and so far that has rung true um, and I that you know that instills a confidence a foundation that you know a lot of people 
you know, that come from relatively broken homes, you know, don't have, they don't have that sense of this is where my home is, this is where I'm from, you know, and Eve to go other places, like even coming to Atlanta to go to school, you know, it's a different experience. To go from a, you know, rural area to go to, you know, one of the biggest cities in the country, it's different. And really the black mecca, really, it's different. You see so many different people, you know, even at Morehouse, you're exposed to so many type of students, but having that strong sense of who I am, which I got from my family, you know, it really helps you weather the storm because you know what you're about, you know what your values are, and you won't be shaken. Yeah. I Listen, when I, uh, so I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. That's where I was born and all that. And I moved to Charlotte around eight, nine years old. And then I moved to Sumter, South Carolina for the last two years of high school. And when I tell you, it was like, I was amazed when I went to Sumter. And I always felt this, uh, you know, visiting and like being there and, you know, in that familial environment. But when I was actually living there, like every day, I remember it was like, you can't go anywhere that no, and no one knows you. Like there's always somebody who knows your family. The question is, who your family know? Like what, who, who your people? Who you kin to? You know. And then I remember there was this one time where I got off the bus uh, from school, and I was walking down the street because I was living with my grandparents at the time. So uh, they have like the street, and then there's a church on the left, and then there's a bunch of you know houses on the right side, and. Uh, one of the one of my uh, church family members uh, is uh, Miss Ida. She was uh, getting her bags out the car, and I was like, "Hey, can I? You need some help, like with your groceries?" I was like, "Oh yeah, you can." Yeah. So I went and I helped her, and then she she sat me down and she was like, "Hey, you want some sweet tea or you want something to drink?" I was like, "Yes, thank you." And then she was like, "Oh, you want some food?" She fed me right there, and then like. It, and then I walked away, I like walked out and said, thank you and everything. And then she took me, she gave me some to go. It was like, and then I walked back to my grandparents' house and I'm just like, this was like a movie. This was like a movie, like, like a film, like something that I've, I felt like you can go into anyone's house or anyone's uh, yard or whatever and have a good time and then act like or they treat you like they were literally like your blood and i definitely agree um so in making you know it's a little larger um so everyone yeah. does <laughs> but that southern hospitality you know yeah. you know and so for me to go from you know saying excuse me when i have a buggy in the grocery store body or I hold the door because I see people coming behind me, you know, and to go to other cities, you know, mainly northern cities where that hospitality is a miss, you know, it really, it is a big difference. Um, And I think, you know, it causes you to be a lot more compassionate um, and a lot more open really just to different types of people. Um, You know, there have been several situations, you know, where, you know, let's say I was looking for directions or you know anything like that and strangers have helped me you know whatever the case mm-hmm. you know and so when i encounter strangers that need assistance i do the same you know and i think that mentality of treat others as you would like to be treated is something that's really mainstream down here especially in african-american households 
Yeah, definitely. And like, as going back to uh, when we were talking about like expectations and and like where we are now in understanding our own identity and trying to formulate our own identity, how how have you been able to to cultivate an understanding of yourself absent from others' expectations of you? Because okay. I know that this, this is definitely something that, you know, that Tristan went through while he was in, you know, trying to piece the world back together that he disrupted. Correct. Um, so for me, I think um, I'm a dancer. And I think for me, dance was really that avenue that gave me, you know, to help me find my identity, help me, you know, learn how to exhibit my personality. And it really gave me a voice. Um, and so when I started to delve into, you know, more African-based styles, you know, you have to give a lot of energy, number one, and you have to give yeah. a lot um, one specifically, the biggest, I think, that really had a impact on me was me learning HBCU dance. So the dancers that you usually see at an HBCU football game, you know, halftime show, doing stands, things of that nature, you have to have so much confidence and personality um, to really own that style. And I was able to really transfer that confidence into other avenues of my life. You know, when I go into a room, I'm confident in what I'm saying. You know, I'm confident that I'll be heard, respected. And if they don't, I still smoke my piece, you know, and to have those types, like everyone needs that type of avenue, whether it's, you know, sports, whether it's dance, whether it's singing, acting, writing, whatever your avenues are, that is a place for you to number one, work out issues that you may have. And then also, like I said, really finding that personality. Um, and I really think um, as I've really gotten more comfortable and really just not caring about, you know, what people think, you know, I'm going to, well, I don't believe gender, so I'm going to do whatever style I feel like doing that day. You know, I'm going to watch whatever, if I want to watch strong female leads all day long on Netflix, Listen, you know, we love a strong female lead. I'm doing the things that make me happy. And as yeah. far as if it's something that you cannot live without, it is a passion. I know that I cannot live without dance. That is a passion for me. I know I cannot live, you know, it's nerdy, but I know I can't live without STEM. That is something that exhilarates me, inspires me. Um, and so to really use those avenues, like I said, it's almost like a self, it's almost like therapy in a way because you really have to clear your mind and be open, you know, to really get into those activities and I think that's why it's important for everyone to kind of have those hobbies you know and let your kids or let your friends choose their own hobbies you know it might not be it might be soccer you know it might not be you know track it might be you know water polo it just depends right. on what that person's interest in and I'm glad that you know my parents let me try every sport under the sun you know they let me try every fine art you know, so I was really able to say, okay, I enjoy playing soccer. I don't enjoy right. playing. I enjoy dancing. I like music, but I don't want to be a musician. You know, it, it, you know, those opportunities are priceless because they really help you find who you are. What was that moment that, if you can remember, or moments or moment in time 
where you really decided for yourself that I'm going to take control of my own life and I'm going to, to do what's necessary to be happy and live out my passions. Okay, um, so the biggest example would be when I started dancing. Um, so when I came into high school, um, I joined the marching band and, you know, I, of course I knew what dancing was, but I wasn't really exposed, you know, at my middle school or at my elementary school, you know, I wasn't, you know, I just wasn't aware. So when I got there, you know, and I'm watching, you know, freshman, we don't, we don't know the show yet. So they're showing us, you know, what they've been working on so far. And when the dancers came out, it was just... <laughs> Now the type of style, the type of style that your high school was, it wasn't uh, military, right? It was like they were high stepping, and it was a show band. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So it was more. um, But we ended up getting a band director, Mr. Michael Scott, um, who was an Albany State alum, um, which is a HBCU in Georgia, Um, and so he was able to bring that style. But that, but being at a fine art school. All I was about of, to say, yeah, you went to a fine arts school, right? Right. So all of the auxiliaries that we had as far as like color guard majorette dancers, they were highly skilled. Um, and so I felt like I was looking at a college halftime show. Um, and it was magical. Um, not only just because of what they were doing, but just the the joy that came from moving, the joy that came from um and as I started to get into it more over the next two years ago or so, you know, I started to get a lot of pushback from my parents. Um, you know, really felt like um, not necessarily it was a bad activity, but more so, you know, those that usually are dancers that are African-American males or actors, you know, the, the, the assumption is that they're homosexual, of course. Okay. I mean, I... But that had nothing to do with me choosing with to dance. Wanting to dance, yeah. That was that was the first time I've truly felt like I expressed myself. You know, band was cool. I tried singing. You know, I tried acting. Those things were cool. But dance takes me to yeah, a whole yeah. level. Um, and when I realized that, I was not going to let it go for anybody or anything. And you know, I'm grateful for that. Um, because it's been something that's got me, gotten me through a lot of hard times. Um, and now it's something that my parents appreciate about me. It's something that they love to see, you know. So I really had to fight for what my passion was and forgetting about what people are going to think, what people are going to say, you know, because it's not about them. I dance for me. I don't dance for anybody else. Like, what did it feel like when you actually understood that this is – I need to do this regardless of what anybody says I'm going after this and no one can tell me otherwise so for that for me that moment was before my senior year of high school um so I had you know discovered dance as a freshman so those last three years I was learning from my friends you know I was going to whatever studio I could go to you know whenever I could in my free time you know I was I was watching my history is nothing but you know, dance videos, whether it's at a different HBCUs or whether it's a modern company, I was just absorbing as much as I could. Um, but senior year rolled around and I had decided that I wanted to register, as I say, my school is fine art school. And I said that I wanted to register for dance as my elective. Um, my parents yeah, were- You were an IB. You yeah, were an IB. I was so an we IB. were both an IB. 
which is really crazy when we found that out when we first met each other. But yeah, and you can you have to choose an elective when you're in IB uh, to satisfy the course requirements. Well, the the program requirements. Correct. And we had just got an IB dance. Like we had just got a new instructor, and she knew we had the IB program, and she was really interested in it. And so um, me and my friend Skylar, who were both in the IB program, we were kind of her guinea pigs as far as like how IB dance would look. Mm-hmm. That was the one, that was the girl you danced with in the video you showed us and you're like your senior presentation or something like that, yeah. senior performance? Yeah. Okay. So, gotcha. Of course, you know, the official IB dance, you know, of course didn't start to that next year, but, you know, we were able to, number one, I was in the upper level dance course. Mm-hmm. So an adjustment, um, but, you know, and to have, Dance, some dancers who, you know, weren't as open to new people coming in, you know, or people that mm-hmm. didn't have the training that they had, because these are people mm-hmm. that have been middle school or elementary school. Um, mm-hmm. And I really decided that this is something that I'm passionate about. This is something that I want to do. And I don't care if I have to practice these dance moves four hours after class or four hours. I'm a kid. And the growth of my ability dance ability from the beginning of my senior year to my senior piece Mm. it was nothing but the sweat blood and tears that i put in every single day because that's what i love to do i would leave marching band practice which was you know three and a half hours go home and dance for two hours you know i cared about it that much me and my friend would work on you know creating choreography you know we were performing wherever we could because that's what we were passionate about doing and I wasn't, I understood, you know, where my parents were coming from, but it was more of a, this is something that I feel like I'm meant to do. This is something that I cannot live without and I'm refusing to do so. Um, And once that understanding was clear, it, you know, it got a lot easier. Um, Of course, my first couple of performances, I felt like it was a little tense, but you know, when I got to my senior performance, you know, my parents were in tears. Um, they really, you know, grew to the fact that this is something that I'm talented, I'm naturally talented in, and this is something that I really care about. And especially with, you know, being in the IB program, being one of the only African-American males in the IB program, you know, there were a lot of expectations, you know, I didn't know how people were going to receive the fact that I was a dancer. I was known through the school because I was only one of four guys. Um, but the step out and to hear now, you know, from former classmates, you know, that they truly enjoy that I just, I I dance from my heart and, you know, I really cared about dance, you know, it wasn't just for, you know, a credit or it wasn't just because I thought it looked cool. It was something that was a part of me um, that will be with me forever. What is your definition of God? My definition of God. Um, so, I'll start with the definition that I was raised on, and then into, you know, what I've come to more so believe now. Um, I felt like growing up. Of course, I grew up in a you know Baptist church. Um, I felt like you know God was not only the creator, um, but He was the regulator, if you will of us you know meaning that 
if we did not follow everything, you know, in the Bible, or if our lives did not turn out the way that the Bible depicted that something was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, as I've grown older, I've begun to appreciate that God is just, a, is, is just the creator. Um, and, and, and with that, with that, what I mean by that is we have free will, you know, and no one is the same. And, you know, we have to be able to accept the differences of those, you know, who are different from us because I was born, you know, I grew up and I didn't, you know, ask anybody. I didn't, there was no, you know, checkbox, you know, when I came into the world on what I'm going to be, you know, I had to find those things out for myself. And to me, if I find these things out for myself, those things are natural. And mm-hmm. so, like I said, I really feel like God is the creator. He provides guidance um, in a lot of different ways. Um, but I don't agree with the strictness that is imposed in his name. What does hope look like for you? Hope is something that is the light at the end of the tunnel for me. Um, It is that belief that everything, not necessarily everything is going to be okay, or not even that everything is going to work out how you think it will, but everything for the best. Meaning we're going to go through traumatic things in life, we're going to have good moments. Life really is a roller coaster. You have ups and downs all of the time, but it's the belief that wherever you end up, wherever you land, that's where you're supposed to be. And I truly believe that. I, I, I feel like um, if you have that hope, if you have that determination that you will get through, that's half of the battle. Of course, you have to match that with real work you know, determination, you know, you really have to put in your portion, but that belief that you can do it, it like I said, it's half of that. I feel that. Absolutely. What's one thing you wish you were able to learn about yourself sooner? Hmm. I really wish I had a better understanding of how I socialize. Um, a lot earlier or being okay with the way that I socialize a lot earlier um, because, you know, to be, you know, quote unquote, you know, the smart guy, um, it, it separates you sometimes, especially in the African-American community because growing up, you know, it's not, it's ostracized to be smart a lot of the times, you know, it was the, you know, ooh, Ira has his hand up again. You know, and I'm not raising it because I want to beat everybody. I'm raising because I think I know what the answer is. And she asked the question that I think I know the answer to. You know, right. it. you have to be okay with that. You know, regardless of what people say, regardless of what they believe to be true, your truth is really the priority and it should stay the priority. Yeah. What is your understanding of regret? Regret means to me that you haven't let go of the what ifs. That, 
that, you know, in that moment, in every moment, make the decision that you want to make. Live every moment to the fullest. But once that moment has passed, you have to let it go. And that's something that I'm working on myself actively, um, you know, because I, I, a lot of times I do get very caught up in the whose fault is it, what happened, I want to relive it, you know, in some hope that it will be resolved magically. But mm. that's, the reality of the situation is life happens. Sometimes you make the bad decisions. Sometimes, you know, things just happen to you. But you have to be able to get up learn from the mistakes, learn from the situations, dust yourself off and keep going. You know, it, it, you can't get stuck in the what ifs, you know. Don't let the past or the thought of the future paralyze you. You know, yeah. if you're stuck there, you won't be able to move forward. You won't be able to enjoy the present, you know. And so I think regret can sometimes be, can, regret can be shackles. And, you know, we really have to be okay with letting things go. That's the only way that you'll be able to truly progress. I definitely agree 110%. What is the difference between living and existing? So to me, I think a good, you know, um, analogy um, for existing is you're sitting in a movie theater and, you know, you're looking at the screen. You know, and, you know, sometimes people may speak back and forth to the screen, but the truth of the matter is you have no influence on what occurs on the screen. Whatever was written, whatever was filmed, that is what you're going to see. It doesn't matter if you tell I open that door or not, she's still going to open the door. And so when you're existing, you're letting your life happen in that way. You're not influencing yourself. You're not making those decisions for yourself. You're just letting life flow, push and pull all over you. And you're just going with it. If you're living, you're making an active decision every day to matter. You're making the decision that the decisions you make in whatever it is matter, that the actions that you take every day matter. Living is truly being present in the moment. It doesn't matter if it's that moment. It doesn't matter if it's the best moment of your life. You have to always be present. You know, those experiences that we have in life, they make us who we are. And if we truly only exist, we lose a lot of what life experiences can teach us. And not only teach us, but to teach, you know, those that come behind us. You know, I, I, we learn lessons from our parents based on the mistakes that they made, you know, in the past. And you can't pass that on to somebody else if you're just existing. You don't have life experiences to share. You're too afraid to step out into the field and play. Absolutely. And... Uh, what is one thing that you wish the world had more of? Understanding. I really wish um, the world would just be more open in a lot of different ways. Open to, you know, differences of opinion. Open to different lifestyles. Open to different thought systems. Open to different belief systems. Because the truth of the matter is, we're not all the same. Every country isn't the same. Every, you know, even people that are from the same descent are not the same. And so 
it's very important that we are open to understanding and not just understanding but learning because the more that we share those differences the more that we explore those differences because you know it it teaches you something that you may not have been experienced in your life lifestyle or your heritage you know a lot of the times when we have you know you know, a lot of, you know, what's really hot now is doing like fusion foods, you know, taking food from one culture and another, putting it together and things like that. We should be doing that with literature. We should be doing that, you know, arts. We should be doing that with society at large because why? We all have something to offer. And if we had a little bit more understanding, that would make the difference, especially with African-Americans because we have so much to offer but we're reduced to so many few qualities that our true purpose, our true integrity, our true personality is truly mis is, is misunderstood because why? Because we've been put in a box, we've been painted into an archetype, and there is no room for you know our, our true personalities to come out. Why? Because you've already decided who I am. You don't know you. You know, you don't know what I have to give, you know, and some of the greatest cultural, you know, connections are built when two cultures come together amicably, share those and celebrate those differences. Um, so I, so like I said, understanding is one of the biggest things that we can have and it's something that makes a difference, even in our country if our caucasian counterparts had a better understanding of our mannerisms of who we willingness are so misunderstood you know it's an assumption you know that i'm dangerous it's an assumption that i am barbaric in some way and to not understand that i enjoy reading books just like anybody else i enjoy doing math equations like most nerds regardless if they're black and white and those things about me you would never know because you're too busy looking at my skin and yeah. so i felt misunderstood in this country a lot of the time i felt like it wasn't okay for me to be an intelligent african-american male that wants to not go to college to be an athlete but wants to go to college to be a scientist you know to search you know those things get lost in the words and we are truly you know misunderstood in that way in this country Thank you so much for taking the time to watch or listen to this conversation. And thank you again, Ira, for agreeing to be a part of this series. It was such a pleasure to talk with you, as it always is. And I hope you are doing well. You can find everything about Ira in the description below. Please follow him on Instagram. And he's also a dancer, so he has a lot of great dance videos on there that I'm sure that all of you will enjoy. So if you are interested in continuing these conversations, please like, comment, share, subscribe, and be a part of the RRC family. One conversation can change the trajectory of someone's life for the better. Together, we can make this happen for you, for me, and for everyone around us. Thank you so much again for tuning in. Take some time to look inward and always start with forgiveness. Remember to vote. Remember to wear your mask, and we'll see you on the next one. Love always.
Chapter four will be based on the book All About Love by Bell Hooks. You can find a copy of the book in the description below. It's a warm affirmation that love is possible. Can't wait for you to hear it.